So what's, what are we thinking? What's, uh, does this have a title? The title is, How Is My Faith Influenced? That's it. That's the title. Oh, okay. Not, not <laughs> because of why, why, or anything. No, it's just so we're we're going into this influencer series, and we're talking about major influencers who, um, as individuals, kind of shaped the way that we understand faith today and the way that we practice our Christianity, and so. I just started thinking about like there are so many influential people, not just people, but structures in place. Like sure. the fact that we live in the United States influences the way that we practice our faith. The fact that you and I both reside in the state of Texas influences the way that we practice our faith. And so I just started to think about like what is my faith really made up of Absolutely. and what has made it what it is today? Yeah. Um yeah. Yeah, no, to that point, there are a lot, aren't there? You know, like history, your history, my history, uh, and then our parents' histories and assumptions and um, experiences. I think um, as I contemplate it, life experiences and intersecting moments of faith have both contributed to and challenged my faith. And when I say challenge, challenge, why do I believe? Why do I think? Why do I practice what I practice? And it sometimes has made me question or discard some of the things I used to do. Well, so, hey, y'all, welcome to the Life Plus God podcast. There you go. Yeah. Tee it up. (laughs) My name is Alyssa Robinson, and I am here with Reverend Doug Meyer. Hey, hey. And, uh, well, we kicked it off right away with wrestling with this question, how is my faith influenced? Um, Yeah, there's Mm. so many factors that come into that. And so... Well, and I would say they're fluid in that... Like if you, um, in a capsule, there are things that influence my faith today. Yeah. There are things that influenced my faith yesterday and a week ago, a month ago. You know, I think it's on a, a line. It would be interesting, maybe only to me, to draw a line and go all the way back to formative experiences. Hmm. You know, three, four, five. What were those moments that faith surrounded me probably through bedtime prayers and Bible stories by my mother. Yeah. Well, and and I don't know if I, as I get older, I start to question, am I a pessimist? Have I always been a pessimist or am I just jaded now as an older person? Um, but I do, as I was looking back on things, I'm like, man, there are so many negative things that have influenced my faith. Um, negative interactions, negative views of the church, seeing hypocrisy, like all of these things. And it's easier for me to think about the negative things that have influenced my faith than the positive things. And I'm sure the positive far outweighs the negative. But when I was going back into the arsenal thinking, okay, what are the moments that shaped my faith and the way that I am today and the way that I believe today? A lot of it is out of negativity. That's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I, I have a chapter very similar to that, and you're making me even right now think about the balance between, you know, for me, I'm going to call it trauma and drama, and the amount of stuff that then I uh, discarded or devalued versus uh, the majority of days are good days, 
and they're good people and they're, you know, the sun shines and the flowers bloom and, you know, that kind of thing. But I take those, um, I don't, I don't think I discard them, but I don't value or I, they don't have as big a, <clears throat> as the yucky days. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's an attitude thing. Hmm. I don't know, because I think about the same way that I'm influenced by the news. So recently, I've taken it in upon myself, and I've done this a few times, because I just keep getting caught up in news loops. And um, so there's this constant tension in my life of like, I feel like it's my responsibility as a world citizen to know what's happening in the world around me and to be able to see where people are being oppressed, where, you know, governments are overstepping their bounds, like where all of these things are happening so that I know what's going on. But at the same time, it brings me down so much in my day-to-day life and it starts to um, warp the way that I see people and the way that I see the world. And I wonder if I do the same thing with my faith of like, I see all of these negative things happening in the world around like uh, pastors who are being caught in scandals and people being caught embezzling and people who are supposed to serve other people are actually harming other people and all that stuff where the truth is that's not my church experience. That's not my faith experience. And yet I let it shape the way I think about church and faith right here, right now in my life. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I think it's hard to live a uh, encapsulated life. Like, um, yeah, I'm kind of a, a severe news junkie. And I don't know why you were talking about that. I was trying to figure out why and where I ever got that as like a, a, a super high value. Like I watch the news. I listen to the news. I, I Sorry, keep up. Doug just watched me <laughs> spill water all down the front of my shirt. Yeah, no, it was drool. She drooled. <laughs> um, but... Um, Somewhere in my mind, I have that I have this responsibility as like this global citizen to be aware of that. It is hard to contain that. Like we live in such a protected little bubble. We're so far from war, but yet I think there's value in knowing it. And I get really frustrated because I don't think there's a darn thing I can do about it. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with faith scandals. So of late, I've been kind of swept up in some other big, big mega church junk that's been all over social media and the news and stuff. And I have to push myself to go, that's there. That's there. That's not where I am. Mm-hmm. Um, to just kind of figure out a way to, to, uh, to not spread it everywhere and make assumptions about if it happens there, all church people must be untrust, you know, or, or you can't trust them or whatever. Yeah. Well, no, that's not really true, but well, it's easy to go there. So, so let's hone in okay. on faith influence. Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, so my first question might seem kind of weird <laughs> around this, go for but it. I think that it, it kind of can, you can pull in child influences. What made you decide to continue embracing Christianity in adulthood? You know, there are assumptions in that question, aren't there? So decide to continue embracing. I don't know that I decided, but maybe I did. So um, these are challenging thoughts in that 
I answered yes to what I felt like was a call into my life in ministry. How do I differentiate my call into ministry from my everyday living a life as a Christian disciple? Um, they are one and the same at times, and then at other times, they're not. Does that make sense? Yeah. And um, there are times that I do what I do because it's my occupation. And it is how I get a paycheck and how I pay my mortgage and how I pay my car bill and, you know, that. The, the uh, hard part is not letting that be uh, the blanket that wraps up all of my expressions of my Christian faith. Yeah. And I think we talked about this once before about, like, reading the Bible. Like, reading the Bible for me on some days is part of work. Then reading the Bible for me on other days is a part of my individual spiritual journey. And I struggle to keep those separate. And uh, so in thinking about my mental conscious decision to continue, I think it is a continuing decision. Yeah. It is a work in progress. Uh, and at times I... Um, I'll be honest, I do it because that is what, that's all I know how to do. And then there are other days when I get frisky and I start uh, taking pieces of it apart and wondering and doubting and questioning. And I uh, have this little voice in my head that says, be careful, be careful. Uh, because of the way they're so enmeshed, right? Yeah. Like if I were just in a group with a whole bunch of other Christian people, um, it would be one thing. It would be really exciting and fun, and we would uh, wonder and question and doubt and do it all over again and deconstruct and put back together. Well, because I also have this responsibility as a faith leader here at church, I have to be cautious about who and where and why I do that. And the example I'm setting or um, just – I'm going to use this word, but I don't like this word, This the impression I'm making. Well, because you yourself – are an influencer in your career, like in your job title of taking on that role of reverend, um, you are influencing people's faith on a daily basis, whether you want to or not. And I feel like what I'm hearing, correct me if I'm wrong, is part of you is like, I just want to be a human like the rest of you. <laughs> Like, yeah. I just want to wrestle with the things that you're wrestling with, too, and for that to be okay, and for you to embrace me in my times of doubt in the ways that I embrace you in your times of doubt, but it's like you're not given that liberty because you recognize the influence that you have on other people's faith journeys. Yeah, I think that's well said, and I have been pretty fortunate in that there are a number of people and groups with whom I've been uh, vulnerable, I guess is the right word, and exposed those moments of wondering. Yeah. I used to use the phrase wondering and wandering. And if, if somebody had like written down all of my different phrases that were kind of like uh, scenic overviews into this experience of wondering about my faith, uh, it would tell a story of me like, sticking my toe in the water mm. and trying to find out where is it safe to do that and not. And um, the, and and uh, 
I don't think I've had anybody do like a, what I call like a total freak out. Like you can't say that. You're not supposed to say that. Why in the world do you say that? And it's probably because I'm hyper cautious mm-hmm. about when and where. It takes a while for me to have read enough cues from you to go with, okay, yeah, this is a safe place to do that. Mm-hmm. So how do you think our culture has shaped your understanding of who God is? What is the influence of this American culture that we are consumed in <laughs> yeah. to understanding who God is? You know, I think that happens on a lot of layers. Like, um, we joke kind of, but I think we kind of are serious about, uh, wow, God really blessed me today with a great day. And that great meaning, like I got a raise, or I did this, or a, a, a or measurable, I found a really good parking. I found spot a good parking Target. spot, or <laughs> hey, it's my wedding day and it didn't rain, or you know, just these kind of things that seem very self-centered and very. Uh, I call it "I dream a genie God day," you mm-hmm. know, where everything worked out just right, and I'm going to attribute the just rightness to God, and God did it because God found favor in me, and God found favor in me because more or less I'm a good person. Do you think that's a cultural thing? Well, I think with that, it the cultural part is, and maybe it's a Southern cultural thing, mm. of uh, good that happens is attributed to God. Mm. Not just, can, not, can good stuff just not happen? And then, and because there are a lot of, of voices over here, to, especially to the right of us, who are God being omniscient and omnipresent and this and that, and then basically that God is this huge, you know, control board God in charge of everything. So, see, what I get caught up in with the cultural influence on who God is, I, I think that that is a piece of it, of... Uh, the blessing, the blessing. We are blessed to be Americans. God bless America. Like I'm right. blessed and, and all of these things. And then you and I have had the conversation already of like, okay, well, what does that mean for people who maybe were born in a, you know, more conflict ridden part of the world? Uh, are they not blessed? Are, you know, refugees from Haiti and Syria and Ukraine and all of these places, uh, Afghanistan, are they not blessed? You know, and so you, you start to wrestle with all those things. But I feel like what our culture tries to impose on us is like the rah-rah God of like, God is on our team. God is on our side. God is rooting us on. We are God. I mean, and so it's it seems so counter to Jesus's message to me. And sometimes I wonder, you know, can I, with living with the influences of this culture, where I um, embrace capitalism, I embrace consumerism. I embrace um, saving up and storing my money and investing in my 401k and um, the latest fashion trends and, you know, all of these things. Uh, Those are all huge influences that they, it feels like they override my faith 
so many times, and yet we try and hold them together and act like they can coexist. And I struggle with that. And, and I struggle with like, can I embrace the ideals of what it is to be an American and call myself a Christian? Mm-hmm. Which is like a yeah. weird question because for so many people, it goes hand in hand. But I'm like, man, what Jesus asked of me is to drop everything, like let go of all of my material possessions, uh, leave my family behind, and sacrifice everything for the good of others. There is no part of my life that's doing that. Right. Um, and so I ask you, you know, there are so many faith traditions and that if you're going to be a pastor, you're not getting paid. <laughs> that's not your job. Right. Like you're having to work with UPS or delivering whatever. Like you have a side gig that you're doing to make money and then you're pastoring. Would you still be a pastor if you weren't paid to do so? That's a great question. Um, probably not. I don't know. You know, I, I, I have definitely gone through seasons of... Um, so I'll tell you a story. When I was really young, like super young, and uh, said, yeah, I'm going to make a, a lifetime commitment to being in the church, being a, having a church vocation. And uh, graduated from college, undergrad, hadn't done any graduate school or anything yet. Went and got my uh, first job, which was in 1980. And my wife was then, the plan was for her to be a graduate student at UT Dallas. And uh, the starting, they set my salary according to the starting teacher salary in the big burb of Mesquite, Texas, and it was $11,500. And there was like a summer of reckoning, of realizing uh, how far or how not far $11,500 would go. And then, um, you know, in every kind of iteration of a school year or whatever, you know, we would get just really, you know, a raise in a church is incremental. It's a couple of percent if you're lucky. And I had a um, my first career questioning meltdown was uh, all around realizing that between the two of us, we made what was at that time set as like uh, the poverty level in America. And it pissed me off. I was really resentful and... Um, probably spent about half a year thinking we just literally can't survive doing this. And um, it, uh, it has been in the back of my head a gnaw that uh, at times uh, I find resentful that uh, people who make a lifelong career out of ministry uh, barely get by, Yeah, you know, and uh, yet are, you know, at its core, there are fundamentals about that that are consistent with Jesus' teaching, but are uh, antithetical to Western cultural uh, career advancement and success and, and the labels of, you know, uh, success. And is that the cultural influence of like the way that we think about money and the way that we view justice with money and what we're receiving as workers and all of these things? Is that cultural or does it hold true to what God wants for us? Like, it, oh, it's I think they're polar hard opposites. to separate. I think they are, uh, they are in direct conflict with one another. I think uh, American aspirational 
economic uh, consumerism, fill in all the blanks for all those words, uh, are over here. And I think the simplistic life of uh, Jesus is at the whole other spectrum. But is is it even possible for us to achieve that unless we literally become a houseless person? Do you think? I think it is. uh, It's a really hard struggle. (laughs) You know, uh, I think that it would be a whole lot more uh, amenable if uh, people came really close to a communal lifestyle and shared their goods and shared resources and housing. And uh, for one part, they would all be kind of singing out of the same book, and there would be this internal uh, built-in affirmation. And, um, you know, I've thought about it before, and I've thought, you know, it would really make sense. Matter of fact, we were in a group the other day of uh, friends who said, let's we didn't use the word commune, and I guess commune has a uh, gets a bad rap by what free love and all that hippies and dope and sex and all that back in the sixties or seventies. But let's build little houses, let's have some land, have a shared cooking area, a shared garden, a shared pasture, and that kind of thing. And um, I think I could do that. I yeah. think uh, with enough, you know, private space, and I think that that. Um, to me, that kind of living and caring for one another seems a whole lot more consistent with the way Jesus taught than the Americanized, career-driven Jesus. Yeah. So I feel like for both of us, we're claiming, okay, the way we view money based on our culture has had an influence on our faith in yep. a way and the way that we choose to follow Jesus. That's fair. Money and then the, for um, what I can speak to for me is the cultural affirmations of success and of standing and stature. Mm. And, uh, you know, those might be defined by where you live, how big a house you live in, what kind of car you drive, how often you get a car, you know, the, uh, the accessories of life, um, again, are not uh, complementary to the gospel. Right. So, yeah, you're right, jackpot. <laughs> I guess. So that was fun. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It kind of feels like a beat. (laughs) Whooping. Um, So let's let's shift over to the church. We talked about the culture, which I feel like it can get cyclical really quick, right? Because the Western church is very much shaped by the culture as well. Yep. Um, But how do you feel like the church has influenced your faith journey in positive or negative ways? Well, I think it's uh, it depends on what part of the church I look at. Yeah. You know, so if I look at the, the underbelly, the, uh, that has influenced it because some of that is just ugly and dirty and dark, and uh, it has infiltrated my thinking. When you say the underbelly, what, what, what are you imagining in your head when you think of the underbelly of the church? I'm thinking of the, the businessy stuff of— um, Meetings where hard decisions have to be made about uh, allotment of funds, of policy, of evaluations of staff, of yeah. of measurements that are held that don't necessarily feel uh, Christ-like. Mm. And comments are made, and it, it if you took away the sign on the street and you just walked into that meeting, at times it would feel just like you were in a small to medium-sized business. And they were trying to figure out a way to survive. Yeah. 
And, well, and that and it's hard because like I mean, I guess we could have a debate around is that necessary? But like when you were talking about a commune, I was imagining, oh man, what if our staff was just one day as an experiment dropped into a commune and we had to learn how to live together, we would tear each other apart. There would be yeah. people saying, you're not pulling your weight. I'm doing way more than you are. Like you said you were going to do this and you didn't do it. And it would fall apart so quickly. And so like when I think of the underbelly, it's like the human element of like our base human error <laughs> sure is well, the it, underbelly of the church but it also like i don't know well yeah I, and all of that so the church is made up of the people who have all you know we we are the church and at the very same time the underbelly so those things that make me irritated anxious proud stubborn jealous envious lazy the, those all still exist in the lens of me being in the church. And at times my faithfulness will serve as a modifier to some of those, but it doesn't necessarily eradicate them. I mean, I've been in church meetings where staff people have gone uh, ape, angry over other things and um, have acted and said in ways that were not Christ-like. But I also know that... uh, Jesus loves us in our our brokenness and is forgiving of all that. So I I think that the hard thing is to figure out an image of the church in its just rawness that is still consistent with Jesus in his most loving. And um, I I don't think, like I I say on occasion, like if Jesus just happened to drive by one Sunday morning and stopped in any big church, I don't think, I think he would wonder what was going on. Like what is this? What? It, oh, you think you think this is what I wanted y'all to do? I think he would be perturbed and perplexed. Yeah, man. When I think of the ways that the church has influenced my faith, there's so many complicated feelings around it. Especially now working at a church, it complicates the feelings even more because all of the things that you were saying around like in a meeting, someone just losing their cool, which is something I never saw in the professional world ever. Oh, really? Really, never. People did not. And I don't know if part of it is like, you can more easily detach yourself from the work you're doing in a corporate environment mm-hmm. than in a church environment because there's so much more passion and personal, like your heart is in everything that you're doing. Yep. Um, so like passions run high. So maybe if we think of the church more of like a family Thanksgiving dinner, <laughs> we're in a Every constant day. state of family Thanksgiving dinner, trying yeah. to avoid politics, trying to avoid, you know, this thing that we know will send Uncle Jim off into a tirade, whatever it is. Um, but yeah, there are there are ways that I've seen people react and treat each other in the church that I'm like, I've never seen anything like this anywhere. Like people treat each other this way and it's in a church. And so there's some of that negative influence that like, it kind of shakes my faith a little bit because I'm like, these are supposed to be the people representing Christ on this earth. Yeah, This is what we've got. Like we're not doing great. And then the other side of it is like the church was such, um, 
a place of light and love for me in my upbringing. And I was very fortunate to be raised in a family that truly embraced like the tenets of Jesus and his teachings. And um, I was loved and cared for exactly how I was. Nobody tried to change me like the church uh, was a very positive place for me. And so it allowed me to grow into uh, this ass of a person that I am today, questioning everything (laughs) because I was given free reign to do so and say, yeah, ask your questions, bring it on. You know, there's nothing that we're afraid of and there's nothing that God can't handle or that we can't talk about in this church environment. And so there's the positive. And then as an adult, I'm like, ugh, Mm. what happened to the church of my childhood? (laughs) Yeah, but you know, even as you were saying that, I kind of got... a charge in that um, maybe the great thing is that it is all of the above. Yeah. Maybe so. Like, go back to uh, Thanksgiving dinner. So, like, at Thanksgiving dinner, there are uh, all the different personalities gathered, right? And there might be down at this end of the table a really terse, coarse conversation that's involving politics. While down here at this end of the table could be a wonderful conversation about uh partners finding each other or new life coming or or a new season entering into. And all of that in its own crazy recipe works together to have like uh, occasional harmonic moments. Like, and that's how I see the church. Like, um, and maybe that's what helps me hang on is mm-hmm. that there are still, uh, there's a guy named Marcus Borg, a theologian. I don't know if he's alive or not. Anyway, he talks about those, he uses this phrase, thin moments between uh, the kingdom of God and human beings and about how every now and then we rise to the occasion and we get really close to what uh, was perhaps the intent or design for creation. You know, those moments when we um, feed the hungry, rescue the poor, rescue the, uh, you know, the prisoner, say, do those things that are life-giving versus life-taking. And uh, I see those. I see them both like in, uh, I'm pretty fortunate to have like what I think are really blessed. Uh, why did I just use that word? Really. Uh, because it's the culture. All right. And the culture influences your faith. All right. Put an little asterisk by that. We'll come back to that. Um, yeah. See, that's a great example. It infiltrates the vocabulary of your word, of your uh, talk to isolate down to a word that means fortunate. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Great example. And uh, I get to have these conversations with people that are rich and real and raw and are honest. And I think those are just priceless. And then every now and then the church will get to have those collectively. Like the other night we had a conversation of about, I guess there were about 30 people there and we were talking about um, racism and how does a, a, a pod of white privileged white people speak into that in a white privileged, uh, predominantly affluent area where we live with any kind of responsibility and um, difference making. Well, I think those are real, man, to me, that's the church at its best, you know? And, um, but then we'll turn the page and we'll go to a meeting two days later and we'll argue about which, what outside groups get to come and use the space of the church. Mm -hmm. And we, we rebuild the walls. And so um, I guess 
part of it is just enduring the culture to continue to push out the tenets of Jesus' teaching. Well, I mean, speaking of Jesus, uh, this might seem like a silly question, but I think it's important to examine. How has Jesus specifically influenced your faith? Yeah. So I, um, I try really hard to give people space when they make me mad or when I disagree with them, when they are so different than me that I question their value. Mm. And I have this little implanted tape in the back of my head that says, um, they are just as loved by God as you are. They are just as special. And I have to kind of say that out loud. And um, so it's helped me specifically to value all people, regardless. Just all people means all people. Um, The other thing that I think, uh, how do I say this? I have uh, an appreciation of... uh, puppies and flowers and rainbows and moments that I think are artistic delights, whether it is in music or dance or fabric or touch or whatever. And I think that, uh, I think Jesus is woven into all that. I don't think Jesus ever said, hey, go to an art gallery and enjoy the beauty. But I think Jesus was all about living life uh, to its simplest best. Mm. Um. How about you? Where, where, what's... I think so. The first thing that popped into my head that I feel like I lean into so much is I'll call him Justice Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. superhero, yeah. Justice Jesus. I like that. Of uh, uh, righting the wrongs in mm-hmm. the world mm-hmm. and kind of pointing out to people their own hypocrisy. I love that. And I feel like that's been a big influence on me of like trying to examine the areas in my life where I myself am a hypocrite and uh, trying to, and he does, I mean, what's so incredible is that he does it in such a loving, caring way (laughs) that it's just basically like he never accuses anyone of anything. He just simply asks the question like, hey, could it be that? You know, you know who, but I, I don't know. It, it's just the way that he uses stories and uh, shares life experience with people to bring about justice in a way that's connective and community oriented and um, not necessarily calling people out and making them feel bad or humiliating anyone and just saying, Hey, did you ever think about it this way? I love that aspect of Jesus. But I think that one of the things that I wish I was better at that I see in Jesus is recognizing the small moments Mm -hmm. and um, not getting caught up in the hustle and bustle of like being willing to tell his disciples, 
hey, I need a moment. I'm going to go out into the mountains and and pray. See you never, you know, whatever. Or like he's walking through a crowd of people and stops because a woman reached out and touched him. Well, imagine Jesus walking through a crowd in the middle of his ministry. He had been preaching. People know him. Everyone's crowding him. And there's probably hundreds of people trying to grab at him and touch him. And he feels, you know, one right. woman in need reach out and touch him uh, looking for healing. And he stops. He stops everything that he's doing. And I feel like if I I would have just been like, okay, keep it on with my day. I've got places to be, you know. And for him to stop and take that moment and connect with a single person, um, that's really inspiring to me. And so in my faith, I do try and seek out like what are those small moments and try not to miss things. Um, but I miss them all the time. Like there are so many things that I I just have blinders on. Well, I think going back to how our our culture influences our faith, we are hardwired around here to go big, go full, go fast. Mm -hmm. Stay on schedule. You have, if, what are you producing? What are you putting out? What's your output at the end of the day? It's a measurable, right? You have to have something that shows what mm-hmm. you did, because that is then interpreted or assigned as worth and value. Mm-hmm. So uh, to be, I think, on, to be present, takes away some of that, or at least in my mind, I can't imagine, you know, some things are, are going to have to get off the plate. For me to be able to be present enough, to then be attentive enough, to know, you know, like that phrase we, we use sometimes, read the room. Mm-hmm. to be present with the people in such a way that my stuff doesn't get in the way of feeling somebody else's stuff. Mm. And that, um, I think those are aspirational teachings of Jesus. Just like for me, one of the ones that came to mind after I stopped the, uh, talking was about forgiveness. And just um, that has been a growing appreciation of mine. Mm. I don't think I thought about it a lot before about midlife, I guess. I think in raising kids and just doing life, it was just kind of a thing you do after a thing you've done, <laughs> you know, or you ask for. Yeah. And so appreciating both. Uh, it's the, like part of the apology process of, I'm sorry, I forgive you. Like it's, it's yeah. a checklist. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think um, for a lot of folks, myself included, it was about an inch deep. But I think the... Uh, a lot of things that I've experienced and you have and others uh, t- requires a tapping into a forgiveness that is about 10 feet deep. That really takes a moving away a whole bunch of stuff over the top of it and, and you know, exercising that out. But most of the time, my understanding of forgiveness was just the, we'll call it hit and run apology. I'm sorry. Yeah. Sorry. You know, we've narrowed it down in our culture today just to, to the word sorry. And, and it's quickly followed by a pivot to another subject, mm-hmm. right? And yes. move on. Yeah. What, I, ho- I hope you're going to the next question because I, I think it's a really cool question. Why don't you ask it? Well, I'm gonna, okay, I'm going to ask it and then I'm going to re-ask it. Is it possible to embrace Americanisms and be a Christian without being a hypocrite? I don't know about the first part, but I really like the second part about being a Christian without being a hypocrite. 
Oh, so you would reword the question too. Is it possible to be a Christian <laughs> without being a hypocrite? Full stop. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, All right, so I'm looking up hypocrisy. Yeah. Right? So the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. Pretense. To which one's own behavior does not conform. Beliefs to which one's... So, uh, like, I... I, I uh, a... In my mind, when I first heard that word, I assigned a negative value to it. And uh, I think I am uh, abundantly hypocritical. And I don't think that that, uh, that to be a hypocrite does not mean I'm a bad person. It means I'm an inconsistent person, right? Mm -hmm. And so then I also make up that there are conscious hypocrites who choose acts deliberately and then there are a lot of my actions that are sub or unconscious actions that are still hypocritical when I have like, have we've talked before about unconscious bias. Well, some of those biases uh, contribute to hypocritical actions on, based on people's outward appearances, that I make assumptions of their worth, their value, their safety to be around. Mm-hmm. And that is in direct conflict with love your brother, love your neighbor as yourself, right? So maybe what we could figure out, uh, um, you know how we love to do these crazy surveys and assessments and all this stuff. Maybe we could figure out like a way for a person to measure their hypocrite level. <laughs> and it, after, you enter, after you do the 50 questions, it comes out and says, well, here are the areas that you are the strongest as a hypocrite. Here's your weaknesses as a hypocrite. You know, like mine would be in my quickness uh, to judge others, and uh, that's just, you know, and to, to uh, like Wendy calls me out on this all the time. Like I will point out for her, this is going to, man, I don't know that I want to confess this, like all the ways that she could be loving, more loving, caring, and kind to other people, whether it's family members or strangers, and uh Usually, her her response is, thank you so much, Reverend Meyer, for your input in my life, uh, um, with a very sarcastic tone. But, um, like, I'm I'm an abundant fixer for other people, but I resent it if then you flip the script on me and say, hey, let me point out the ways that you are. So even now, I'm kind of jazzed, actually, by thinking, you know what? Hypocrisy. Yeah. That's, um, I don't, like, is there anybody you know that's not a hypocrite? I guess you don't know. I mean, if if we're basing, that's what I was wondering is like, um, based on the definition that you shared, are behaviors and attitudes different? Because like maybe there are people I know who I don't know are hypocrites because their behaviors do match up with uh, what they say and, and how, but like, you don't know someone's inner thoughts. You don't know, like my behaviors, um, I think often match up with the words that I say, but I might have some attitudes towards people or places or whatever that aren't in line with what I say I believe. I might never speak those out loud. I might try and, you know, uh, adjust them and change them and correct them. But um, does it still make me a hypocrite? I I mean, I think it does. And then you're the only person who can know that you're a hypocrite. 
for sure. I just I see that is such a word that man, I know all my life. If you called somebody a hypocrite or they called you one, it was just almost like calling your mama fat or something. I yeah. mean, it was like a really powerful judgmental word. Yeah. And usually it resulted in like a, a shame slap. But if we're honest, if I'm honest, I think I am pretty consistently hypocritical in many different ways of life. But so the reason I had the question about hypocrisy, I'm I'm gonna do a, a circle okay. back because back. I do feel like it it sounds like it's kind of not in line with the influencer topic. But the reason I asked that is because I feel like so much of my faith has been influenced by hypocrisy. And when I say that, I mean like the way that other people react to me and my Christianhood and my faith and my beliefs is based on the hypocrisy they've seen from the church, they've seen from leaders in faith, they've seen from all these other people. And so they're distrusting of everything that the church has to offer, of everything faith has to offer. I'm one of those Christians. And so as a result, I am a hypocrite because this person is a hypocrite. And so... It begins to like influence um, the way that other people see me and then the way that I see other people because I don't want to be associated with that, with that hypocritical thing. And so sometimes I take the side of like, like, yeah, I totally get why you're an atheist. I totally get why you're agnostic. Like that makes really good sense. And, you know, I don't want to... gospelize or proselytize or share the good news or whatever it is, uh, because I don't want to be accused of being a hypocrite. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So I think that it has a greater influence on me in a really roundabout way um, than I realize. Yeah. You know, I, I think that that's uh, good and right and noble. I think that, um, Somewhere in there, the phrase that came to my mind was guilt by association. Like, um, you're a uh, Jesus follower, and your friend is mad at all Jesus followers because all Jesus followers lie or whatever. Well, no, they don't all lie, but there have been enough who have lied to your friend that that friend warrants having bad feelings about Jesus followers, right? So... um, you know, I think that that is the struggle between, I mean, and it's just our reality of living in an institution that um, is human, that, but also espouses these uh, virtues and then is uh, inconsistent in living those virtues. Um, the, uh, I know, I, and I have been one of those people, and I think that... Um, there is a reckoning point. And the other, question, the other word I wrote down, and I'm not sure exactly how it aligns, but just is accountability. Like, as a person who, uh, like, I have a real hard time imagining myself as an influencer. But let's say in an imaginary world I have been. Um, and then I uh, didn't practice behaviors that were aligned with that which I uh, wanted others to believe that I lived. And um, I made up a story that the day they ever found out that I didn't fully live that way, that I would be discarded. And what I found is that the practice of honest 
and truth-telling and living, uh, you know, consistently being able to say, hey, you can ask me any question about my life and I'll tell you the truth. I think that that uh, is redemptive for influencers. And I don't even know where that thought came from because you didn't ask that at all. But I was just thinking about the hard uh, influencers, uh, I think, need, if they're going to truly be honest about being an influencer, also have to be honest about all the sides of their lives. Yeah. Well, but I'm glad you brought that up because here's the irony in it all, right? Of like you were afraid to admit uh, your addiction or mm-hmm. or whatever or that you had been lying or whatever it is right. that you were dealing with. And because you wanted to be a certain influence mm-hmm. on the church, on the people, you wanted them to see you a certain way. And so like there's a level of influence that comes with that of like you're worried about how you're going to be perceived, how you would influence other people's faith. Yep. But then when you open up and you become honest and you share what's going on with you, I would argue that now you have become so much greater of a positive influence than you ever would have been hiding everything. And you've brought so many people uh, and influenced so many people in recovery ministry and grief ministries and um, just everything having to do with care because you decided to open up and fully embrace like, hey, this is who I am. This is my life. Ask me any question. It's all open. I'm not perfect. Mm -hmm. I've gotten it wrong. I've been where you are. And because of that, uh, you allow, you influence one person who felt like they could never talk to a pastor about any of these things. And then that person opens up and is able to influence others people in positive ways. While before, if you were leaving it all closed in with this whole idea of, well, I need to be a positive influence, what, like, where's the growth in that? Like, where, sure. what benefit came out of that? Well. Other than just being what people expected you to be. Sure. I, and I think that there, um, it would be interesting over a longer period of time to unpack some of that, because I think that I, um, I went through a phase of kind of maybe taking great pride in being an influencer because it also swelled up my ego and it made me think that I was uh, super important to other people. And, but part of that was the sub storyline of being uh, addicted to pornography, which then I was terrified uh, at the thought of people knowing, and probably a part of that storyline in my head was if they know that, then you will have cashed in your influence. You will no longer be that. But then there came such a weight of need to be honest that I was willing to forego any sense of valuing the influencing role. And I flipped a script and I went full on honest and disclosure and early on was shocked that uh, people were like, oh, wow, man way to be brave, way to be courageous. And because I could not see that next page, it was, I can only, I have to turn the page. I have to move on or else I will somehow just evaporate. I don't, you know, it was not, it was never about self-harm or anything like that, but it was just, I couldn't see uh, a future. Yeah. And, but to your point, it is interesting. And I, uh, I will say that that, is what then feeds uh, or battles the little voice in my head that says, don't tell them that. They, they're not ready for that. 
or, you know, come on, you've done enough honesty. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, you're right. I and, and I think that same, I mean, that's what I hold in my my life. That's where, I mean, I value people who uh, are real and honest and raw, and uh, I cut them all sorts of slack to be that, and then to also just sometimes be jerks and an ass and, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, I, I hold their, uh, the words out of their mouth with a whole hot, higher value than somebody who always presents himself as always together. Yeah. My last question. Yeah. You and I both pay attention to deconstructing people on TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, all of that. Um, and... I think that we've both learned something like we're both kind of drawn to that. And so every now and then we'll talk about, you know, oh, have you seen this person? Or I saw someone, you know, talk about their faith this way. Um, what have you learned about your faith journey from these social media influencers that are talking about their faith journeys? Yeah. Well, I think it's, uh, it's courage giving, maybe. Uh, I wrote down the word freedom. And for me, it's freedom in that um, it is an affirmation that it is okay. It's one of those, I think we talked about it earlier, about finding safe places. And that when I, you know, uh, I guess I have a different kind of experience and understanding of social media. And, and, and I, uh, some of the people I follow and listen to, um, I value and respect. They're not just like, you know, yahoos, skateboarding down the road or whatever. But um, so when they are giving voice to their deconstruction experience, there are parts of it that align with mine in that, um, you know, a person who's a deconstructionist, at least in the ones I listen to, don't, what's that phrase, throw the baby out with the bathwater? Yeah. I mean, I think there is an intricacy and a delicacy of taking apart that which one has built and saving the good pieces and realizing there were other pieces that were added on for fluff, for decoration, or for people-pleasing that are disposable. Yeah. And that's the part I enjoy is identifying. And uh, like uh, recently, Wendy and I were on a little road trip together, and, and I eat, you know, five hours in a car. And uh, uh, she's my safe place at times, and I will put things out there and say, so, you know, I don't, I'm trying on wondering about that, or I don't think I'm all in on that anymore. What do you think about that? And then there is uh, some time of processing out loud. It's, uh, she compares it to like going and trying on clothes. Like you look at, for a long time, at a rack of clothes. Yeah. This, you touch that, you do this, you do that, then you bring it back. You take off the old stuff you had on, you put on some new stuff, and some of it you look in the mirror and go, yeah, that looks good. I like the color, the texture, the this, that. Then there's other stuff you put on and go, holy crap, that's horrible. And you take it right back off. So it's fluid. It's an exercise. Um, some people uh, it scares the crap out of because the minute you say, you know what, I think right today I don't believe X anymore. They just, you know, I, they don't know how to process that. Well, what, what do you mean? How can you not believe that? And I'm like, well, I'm, built, I, I'm pretty comfortable 
God and I have a thing. We have an arrangement <laughs> that that um, God's real understanding with my uh, my faith journey, and uh, I think God knows that you know what I love Him, and He's going to come back. And some of the stuff He's wondering about, yeah, I don't blame Him. I think that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Maybe I just have this fairy tale God in my head that's super loving, kind, and patient. And uh, but we got a thing. We got we've got it worked out. Yeah. I think um, for me, when I so it sounds like the the people you pay attention to are more qualified than no. the people I've because for me it is the Yahoo who's like I've been thinking this about you know my upbringing and my faith or whatever, and it's not that I listen to what they say and I'm like oh yeah that's true, um, but what I do like is that these are conversations that don't ap- often happen in a church setting because uh, the church setting is not where people feel the most comfortable doubting and wrestling and, and all of these things. Sure. I wish that wasn't true. Yeah, but I think uh, there's like an invisible sign over the door that says you can't... Doubts are not welcome here. <laughs> yeah, doubters not welcome. Don't ask um, about this. Don't question that. Don't read the fine print. So I yeah. think that part of it is like, oh, I'm not alone. Like there are other people Absolutely. who wonder about these things and maybe we're not wondering about the same things, but to be offered up a different perspective and there's something that they're wondering about that I've never wondered about. And then I'll go to my safe space, my partner and say, hey, what do you think of this? Like I'm kind of like having mental gymnastics yeah. with what this might mean. And for me, that's really fun and invigorating and I enjoy enjoy it. Yep. And so oh it's kind of it's um there is something about it. It feels rather uh gymnastic to me in that it's um that's I don't think that's the right word. But um when it is when a question or a wondering is spoken into the universe, it is as if it is a new door that someone has opened that in my head I wondered if it could ever be opened. And someone spoke it out and it's like it somehow if it were especially a, a wondering that I've had that I didn't think it's out loud yeah. and somebody else did. Or something that's been like in the back of your brain, but you couldn't put words to. Yeah. And then someone perfectly expresses this feeling that you've been having that you couldn't put language around. Yep. Like, oh, that is just. Mwah. Yeah. And you want to thank them and you want to say, oh, thank you so much because you get, you got me get unstuck. Or something yeah. like that. I've heard that phrase, and I like that phrase because sometimes it is like uh, you know scrambling to a situation, and uh, in that moment, there's so much stuff holding me back from you know blurting out my wondering that um, you know usually just walk away from it like a you know defeated little leaguer or something like that. Yeah, and one of the things it, it's kind of stuck with me. So at the the church that I'm a member of, Oaklawn United Methodist Church. Um, Last week's uh, sermon was all about uh, doubting Thomas and how we give him a bad rap, you know, for being the doubter. And um, but one of the things that the the person who was preaching was talking about is um, for Jesus to show up and know that Thomas was doubting and to offer up his wounds and say, touch my wounds, feel it for yourself, experience it, is one of the most intimate moments that we see in scripture. And imagining allowing someone to stick their finger inside a wound of yours. Like there's nothing more intimate (laughs) than that. And so what he said is like, uh, 
maybe instead of calling him Doubting Thomas, we should call him Intimate Thomas mm-hmm. um, and think about him differently. But one of the the part of the benediction that has stuck with me this week is he said, um, may your doubts lead to holy questions. And I just mm-hmm. loved that because I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's mm-hmm. allowing these doubts um, and the influences of the world around you, taking it all in because there's we can't go to church in a vacuum. We have to encompass everything, all of our relationships, all of our baggage, all of our culture, what's happening at work, what's happening at home, what's happening with your mental health. Like all of, all of these things come with you and influence everything that you're experiencing on that Sunday morning. And may all of that lead to holy questions. I'm like, oh, that's so good. And to be and to have those affirmed. Yes. You know, like and you can say, speak them and them. not somebody else yeah. shame you or shut you up or shut you down or whatever, but to go, oh, thank you. And to, to recognize those as gifts. Yeah. And so like when I'm going back to like the very first question that we addressed today of like, what makes you decide to continue embracing Christianity in adulthood? It's those little influences yep. like that yep. of like, I hear one sentence that sticks with me for an entire week and affirms me and empowers me to keep going when I've been feeling discouraged, when I've been feeling like, am I the only person doubting? Am I the only person not getting this? Like, um, and it just pushes me for- forward and Okay. Uh, I don't know. I don't no, know. I if love we're, that imagery. I love yeah. that. And I love like thinking of it as whether it's Marcus Bork, then moments or glimpses or, um, you know, like every now and then just that ray of light that will come through on a super cloudy day and the sun's trying mm-hmm. to break through. Uh, any of those moments, man, yeah, they fill my tank back up quickly or at least help push down all this other self talk going on in my head that usually is judgment and shame filled. So. Wouldn't it be cool to be in a faith community where um, all of that was espoused and valued? And, uh, you know, I'd love to go to a service one day that it was kind of a, name your doubts today. Name your wonderings. Name your wonderings. (laughs) Call them out. Call them out, brother. Call them out, sister. And uh, people cheered for you. Yeah. And there was no sense of uh, judgment or risk. (gasps) Yeah no, yeah, no gasping or a gathering around you afterwards of, I'll be praying for you this week. So, well, this has been fun. And I feel I, and, like we've kind of weaved in and out of influencers. We're taking yeah. a very different approach well, to the worship series, which is about like specific historical figures and how they've influenced the faith. But uh, Yeah, but to that point, so there are individual influencers. There are corporate influencers. There are um, entities... You know, like even within the uh, any big structure, there's all sorts of floating around pieces, right? So our culture right now is super aware of individual uh, influencers. We've talked about the church as an influencer. Families are influencers. I mean, there are all sorts of collectives, I guess. And in any of those, though, when we have moments of uh, vulnerability, honesty, um, you know, that, what I make up from what you said earlier, is that heightens the value of the of the word of the influencer mm-hmm. and that's where i think that's the risk we all need to live in and those more. are the things that you carry with you and that have the true long lasting influence on your life are those little moments you got it all right all right go blow your nose <laughs>
The Life Plus God podcast is hosted, written, and produced by me, Alyssa Robinson, and sponsored by Treach Memorial United Methodist Church in Flower Mound, Texas. If you live in the Flower Mound area, I invite you to stop by and see if Treach could be your new church family. You can learn more about all of our programs and events at tmumc.org. And I hope to catch you next week for our next episode of the Life Plus God podcast.